Evening, Dan. Evening, Omar. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. How have you found the World Cup so far? Oh, I've I've really loved it, and I've really missed it the last about 36 hours. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, it's been um, it's it's fantastic. All of those cliffhanger, cliff edge, last group game matches. I was lucky enough to be at home. Working from home is the, uh, I think is the term now, isn't it really? Um, when you end up just in front of the TV, especially for those last 15 minutes of all of those games, some of those matches, and they sort of blur into one a bit, don't they? But some of those matches, especially were just sensational. I mean, I know it's a while back now, but that that's, I think it was South Korea, Portugal, wasn't it? In the 91st minute, that son assist out of nowhere was just spectacular. And um, I'm trying to remember the other one. There was that period of time, wasn't there, where Spain and was it? I can't remember which team. Spain, Japan, yeah, yeah, we're, yeah, and then Spain were out, weren't they, for about three minutes or something as well? Yeah, um, which it seemed like um, Spanish manager Enrique didn't even realise for a, a short amount of time either. It was just there were, I, I, I loved all of the permutations. I loved all of the drama of it, and you know, we've got some incredible quarterfinals, which we're going to talk about in a second. How about you? How how have you felt things have been? Yeah, well, I think you're right. The football's been pretty phenomenal. Um, and, I, yeah, I, I think, you know, it will go down, from again, from a football perspective as a pretty memorable World Cup, um, particularly in the context of, and maybe we'll get on to discussing this as well, actually, the 2026 format. So maybe we'll, we'll cover that in another session. But, um, the yeah, it's been, been a really entertaining tournament. It's made me realise as well why it's so important to have the World Cup as a quadrennial event rather than a biennial event. Um, I think the, you know, obviously about a year ago now, a bit over a year ago now, there's a lot of discussion for wanting to move the event to biennial. And, you know, as good as this World Cup has been, it's, it's, you just don't want it that often. I think I was discussing with a friend the fact that Japan really, if you look at their World Cup draws in recent years, haven't played really anyone good. It's like they've, they've been in fairly weak groups. I think the toughest team they've played is like the Netherlands. Um, and suddenly they get pitted up against Germany and Spain, you know, the type of contest you've not seen maybe ever. Um, and you get these unbelievable games. And I, I think, yeah, FIFA would do well to um, be aware of that scarcity. And I, and I just think, you know, if you do move to biennial World Cups, you then have biennial Euros and you've got these summer tournaments every year and it just completely dilutes the, the value of it. So, yeah, in in, uh, in my typical way of thinking about the bigger picture, I suppose, it's it's been... I've kind of appreciated it more and, and hope it remains a quadrennial competition. Well, if I may just go tiny bit off tangent, off topic just for a second, and we'll bring it back. Correct me if I'm wrong, Omar, but yes, yeah, so there was a really interesting tweet last week, wasn't there, by the, the Super League guys who were effectively talking about the fact that Liverpool and Madrid had only met, whatever, nine times in, I can't remember, 50 years or 40 games or whatever else it might have been. And your repost, I could be completely wrong, so t- stop me in, in my tracks, was actually Liverpool have played Madrid a number of times inside a short, short, much shorter period of time. But the point over the overarching point being it is scarcity which makes it novel, um, not the other way around. Yeah, absolutely. So it was, uh, it was A22, the, the marketing company behind the Super League now, saying Liverpool and, and Real Madrid have played each other nine times in, I think, 67 years. Isn't that the sign of a suboptimal competition? And actually... Um, yes, you could maybe you could have made that argument thirty years ago, uh, but Liverpool and Real Madrid have played each other six times in eight years. By the time they complete their their Champions League uh, round of sixteen ties, it would have been eight times in in nine years, basically. Um, so they're playing each other pretty often, and and 
I would almost argue too often that Liverpool and Real Madrid to play each other. You know, the fact that it's a Liverpool Real Madrid tie in the second round actually is not as exciting as it might otherwise be um, because they played each other in, in you know a couple of finals uh, in second round games, um, even group games as well. They've played um, you know about seven eight years ago now, so. It has lost that allure. And, and actually, you know, the new Champions League format will produce more Liverpool Real Madrid games going forward. So it's a, it's a really flip. I mean, it's, you know, I, I believe in the scarcity argument. I think that there's definitely value in it. Um, and they're obviously, they're trying to promote the argument, but it's totally disingenuous to suggest that um, that Liverpool and Real Madrid haven't played each other when all, everything about the Champions League over the last, you know, format changes, access changes, distribution changes in the last 10 years have all been geared towards more Liverpool Real Madrid ties and the new format will be as well so yeah you're uh, I think it's, it's a worthwhile discussion having because it's um, you know uh, scarcity is is the most valuable thing in sport but it's also the easiest thing for um, commercial folk in sport to, to erode well I think also as Liverpool fans the the, the least the least amount of times the less amount of times we can play Real Madrid the better right now bearing in mind our record over the last few years but that's for um, another day too well if we if we turn to um, you know Again, one of the great things that the 21st group have been doing over the World Cup is um, the, the the WhatsApp group that I'm part of in terms of all of the previews, projections, performances so far. That's what maybe we should have called this one, previews, projections and performances. Uh, but um, we'll save that one for another day. Yeah, you've, um, left, you've left me in charge of the creative, which is not great um, now. Well, no, it's very descriptive. I'll give it, I'll give it that much more so, you know. Um, but the, the, the fascinating thing now is, is that we've got still extremely strong quarterfinals um, so it'd be great just to, to crunch some numbers effectively on the previews of those quarterfinals. And obviously, we'll try and get this podcast out before um, all of those um, quarters happen, if possible. And then I saw um, uh, the 21st group um, tweet as well this afternoon about where that leaves teams by way of projections as well. So it'd be great to get some insights as to previews for quarters and then uh, projections overall, perhaps. Yeah, you're absolutely right in terms of the quality of um, the quarterfinal lineup. So. Uh, seven of the top nine rated teams in our model are, are in the quarterfinals, which is pretty high. Um, obviously, Germany and Spain are two um, that didn't. Croatia are the, the ninth strongest team according to our model, so they've they've done um, they've done kind of well to, to reach it, um, and it sets up a good quarterfinal list. Morocco, kind of if you like, mid table, um, so still a, a pretty decent team um, to to make the the quarterfinals. Um, so yeah, it's a strong lineup. It's interesting. I was, I was looking today actually at the the quality of opposition played so far, which plays such a big role in, you know, we, tournament football is more about luck than I think we care to admit. And um, who you play plays a massive role in it. And the Netherlands in particular, um, I know playing Qatar kind of skews their numbers a little bit because Qatar are, are, are so weak as a team, but they've played in particular the weakest opposition to date, followed by Argentina, then England. Um, whereas Morocco have, have faced really strong quality today and, and to a lesser degree Brazil and, and Portugal. So, um, yeah, there's there's kind of a few teams that I wouldn't say are lucky, but have certainly kind of had an easier ride through to the the quarterfinals. And then if we look at the, each of the individual ties from our models, um, so perhaps we can start with Brazil um, against Croatia. We've got that 73% chance of, of Brazil uh, making the semi-final. So it's so pretty likely, but there's always, you know, one in four chance Croatia upsets the odds there. They're obviously a team that can keep the ball pretty well and, um, and might be able to frustrate Brazil for, for periods of that game. Uh, the other quarter on that half is, is Argentina-Netherlands, which we make as a 54-46 Argentina favourite. So almost a coin flip. Argentina, probably just about the stronger team, but not much in it. 
Um, and then on the other half of the draw, another coin flip match is, is England-France. I think we're more bullish on England than, than bookmakers and perhaps public's perception. There's, there's certainly a lot of um, feeling that Mbappe is um, you know, a key player, but he's one of, one of 11 players and, and England have got some very good players too. And um, whilst France's underlying results um, mean that we rate them as a, as a slightly better team um, than England, in, England do have that quality of players. And actually the, the value of their bench um, for England is the, the highest of all the teams remaining in the tournament. We've got England's bench, average player on England's bench valued at £28 million compared to the French bench of, of £24-25 million, which is the third strongest bench, uh, Brazil being in, in the middle of the two. Uh, and then finally, the final... Um, Just to ask Omar, so yeah. where do you actually call that coin flip? So is that still a 50-50 or, or you said you had England's slight, slight favourite still? Uh, no, France's slight favourite. So France. 51-49 on our model. So, I mean, for all intents and purposes, a, a coin flip. Um, but France, if you wanted to pick a favourite, you, you'd say France, I suppose, uh, which I think most would agree with. Uh, and then Portugal, 70% favourites uh, over Morocco, so 70-30. Um, but the, the neat thing about um, so there's two kind of there's two relatively strong favourites in Portugal and Brazil, and there's two you know games which are pretty much fifty fifty. The, the night I suppose the nice thing about tournaments is that yes you've got two um, relatively heavy favourites there, uh, but if I just do the maths on those two games, which I'm going to do very quickly, um, the probability of both Brazil and Portugal going through is also a coin flip um, because they are both in the region of kind of seventy percent. So seventy percent of seventy percent is obviously about 50 percent. Um, so in the same way that both Portugal and Spain were, were kind of heavy favourites to progress from this round of 16 games and potentially meet in this round, um, the fact is when you've got two quite likely events, actually there's a, there's a reasonable chance one of them doesn't doesn't happen. They'll be the same with, with Portugal and Brazil. So there'll be, you know, the, the, there's a the chance of an upset in one of those two games and then obviously a couple of really other interesting games. But um, that's that's the kind of probabilities as our model sees it. Very interesting. Um yeah, you lost me at percentages there to to a degree, but um, <laughs> the the interesting element, I guess, overall is that when when you take each one in turn, even though the likelihood obviously reduces, the 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 model at least is Brazil, Argentina, France, Portugal, but the likelihood of that not being the case is also relatively higher than than not higher than you'd expect, but still relatively high, I guess. That's fine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the odds of all four of those going through is is actually not that likely. Yeah. Um, so where does that leave us then in terms of overall projections for um, the team that, that wins the World Cup? I, I remember us and recall us speaking a few weeks ago, which was Brazil as the outlier in terms of the, the highest statistical chance of winning. Has, has that changed in any way, shape or form? No, it's still the same. So pre-tournament, we had Brazil uh, 21% or 22% to win the World Cup. We've now got them at 28 um, France have improved their odds by about three percentage points, up to 15%. Uh, Portugal are uh, the big gainers, probably alongside Brazil in the tournament. So their odds of winning have improved by seven percent to fourteen uh, percent going to this game. So there, I mean, it's, it's Brazil, and then as you said, there's a gap um, to France, Portugal, England, Argentina, who are all pretty equal in that thirteen to fifteen percent range. Netherlands in a bit of a island of their own on nine percent. Croatia and Morocco, obviously, quite low chances for and two percent uh, respectively. So um, yeah, Brazil's your favourites, I think. Um, They've looked very, very good. I thought they were obviously very good against Korea, um, albeit Korea playing quite quite an open game. But they've got, I, I think it's a combination for Brazil. They've got outstanding players. And, and I think in Europe, we don't really appreciate how good results have been for Brazil over the last um, two or three years. And to be fair, they're very good leading up into 2018, but they're, they're very good again this time. Defensively, they are so good. Um, you know, they, they hardly concede any goals. They hardly concede any goals in, in qualifying. So, 
they are a very good team. Uh, they've got unbelievable players, and but again, the, the kind of the way probabilities work, you know, the, the odds are they won't win it. You know, they've got they've got about a three in ten chance of winning it. So there's a seven in ten chance they don't. But they they obviously look very very strong. Well, you can attest to that, I guess, in terms of defence, but also goalkeepers having, um, yeah, Allison and Edison is not a bad um, problem to have, I guess, which most uh, teams would um, would die for effectively. Yeah, absolutely. I, there was a little observation I made as well on on Allison, which I posted on Twitter. Where is it? The one goal they've conceded so far, I think, in the tournament um, was by a deflected shot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which um, it re- is a really good um, blog post which I linked to, which observed how Liverpool um, almost go out of their way not to block shots from outside the box, which is which is really really interesting actually. And again, might go off on a bit of a tangent here, but Liverpool, um, you know, probably one of the more data driven teams in. Um, in football uh, and whether or not this is driven by data I don't know but they you know their block shots from outside the box percentage if you like for the opposition is, is really really low and there is there is some evidence I've seen um, there's a, a really good blog I don't think he blogs as much anymore a guy called Mark Taylor who's looked at the probability of a deflected shot being scored and it's higher than you would expect um, obviously deflections add a bit of randomness it makes it much harder for a goalkeeper to react so having clear sight lines and, and longer reaction times can be can be useful, particularly for shots outside the box, which are low risk anyway. So there's no real point in, in trying to block them. Sometimes they'll fly into the top corner and you'll look a little bit silly. Um, but actually on balance probabilities, it's better to avoid trying to kind of get a small block on it, as it were. Um, so yeah, the, the one goal Brazil have conceded is, is the type of goal Liverpool would almost never concede, which I thought was quite quite a neat little narrative. Well, the, the other interesting thing, I'm not sure if you've seen um, Oigles, I think, is it Soccer Box on Sky? I always remember when he was obviously chatting to lots of people. And I think his most recent series, um, he chatted to Schmeichel about, um, obviously, his time at um, United. And I, I, I really um, uh, remember one element that Schmeichel talked about to Neville, which was explaining that when shots were coming from outside of the box, he would the, the thing, his pet, Schmeichel's pet peeve was defenders trying to block those shots and that he would always say to Neville, and I remember Neville almost being sort of drilled into the fact that if shots were coming from outside the box, to absolutely not get in the way of them. Um, and Schmeichel being very, very keen on making sure that he could see the shot from far out and make sure that it didn't sort of get that deflection. So it's an interesting one as well, held up by some uh, some, st- some stats and data. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it's, in- it's interesting to hear a goalkeeper say that as well, because you would think a goalkeeper might normally want defenders to get in the way, but... Um... Yeah, it's good validation. It's one. It's maybe one of those things that hasn't quite seeped through to the mainstream yet, but but I suspect it might start to over the next um, next few years. Well, let's go on as well, if we can now. Um, I know we, when we when we did some uh, prep for this chat beforehand around, we were thinking about talking about performances so far. Um, I'm not sure which way, if you want to talk about, obviously, young star players and their performances or particular teams and their performances. I think we're probably going to go with players, ultimately, and the sort of star performers or some particular highlighted individuals that um, you'd like to mention. Obviously, there's, there's a few that sprung to mind, I guess, from... Uh, the latest Portugal game and obviously Bellingham's performance over the last period of time. It'd be great to hear some insights you got on um, on that too. Yeah, so I mean, Gonzalo Ramos um, uh, obviously stood out in that that Portugal round of sixteen game. Um, and actually, I must admit, I, I don't follow um, Portuguese football that closely, and I don't necessarily follow the the performances of individual players. But I do look to our player models to to see to get some context around players because in the World Cup, you think of the amount of times we've seen a player perform and we might not have heard that much about them and you know it's very difficult to get a gauge of how good they are and obviously how good a player is is, is really much easier to, to determine that from 
their club performances just because it's a bigger sample size of games and also club football is slightly different to, to international football. Um, so Gonzalo Ramos uh, was looking at his data during that Portugal game and, and actually we rate him as the, the fourth best striker in the world on this century, which is pretty impressive. Erling Haaland, Julian Alvarez and, and Dusan Vlavic are are the only ones ahead of him and all of them are, are older. They're all born, I think, in the year 2000. He's born in 2001 and maybe it's 2001 and the others are 2002, I forget. Um, so so he, he's kind of, there's no striker in the world that is both younger and better than Gonzalo Ramos in, in our um, in our model, which which is a good place to be in. Uh, and, and if you look at all positions, only six players in the world are, both, are rated both younger, uh, are both younger and rated higher, which is Musiala, Bellingham, Saka, Florian Wirtz, Pedri, and um, and uh, Gonzalo Ramos's Benfica team, Antonio Silva, which, who he wrote very very highly as well. Um, so he's he's a pretty rare talent. Um, he's obviously smashing it up in um, in Benfica, which can be hard to gauge the Portuguese league because if you look at the bottom end of the Portuguese league, it's it's you know pretty low quality. Talking about kind of League One quality in, in England, but um, Benfica themselves are top probably top twenty team um, in Europe according to our ratings. I'll check that. Um, so if you're if you're playing pretty regularly and scoring goals for for that quality of team, you're, you're going to be a pretty good player, um, and and the stats sort of bear that out. Well, let's also talk about that point and and what sort of follows on from what can sometimes then happen with a good World Cup. Effectively, you know, we've got Ramos, you've got Bellingham, others Mount Rice, and otherwise that um, potentially have uh, some England players that have potentially is reported two years left on their contracts come the summer. We've got this interesting predicament haven't not predicament but situation whereby you know usually world cups are in the summer and then what follows uh, tends to be an interesting market where sometimes world cup bias and performance feeds into transfers that can happen at inflated prices or otherwise but that usually comes with a elongated summer window over a, a number of months whereas this time round um you know post world cup there's in most jurisdiction is going to be a month January window, uh, which is obviously a much more constrained, shorter period of time post World Cup to be able to, um, you know, transfer players in a maybe more difficult environment halfway through seasons, etc. And, you know, it'd be interesting again to have your thoughts on, you know, I, I know you're mo- you've done some modelling on Bellingham's worth, which has probably increased even more so and is increasing on a sort of daily basis and, and how that impacts um, what might uh, happen in the window coming. Yeah, we did some analysis. This was ahead of the 2018 World Cup, which looked at um, how much is a World Cup goal worth. Um, and typically we found that a player being sold, now obviously historically in the summer, immediately after a, a World Cup, for each additional goal they'd scored at the tournament, um, it was worth another 15% above and beyond what we might expect in, in value. The most obvious case of that was James Rodriguez in 2014, who I think got probably five goals at the, at the 2014 World Cup and, and went for a very large fee to, to Real Madrid. So... Um, World Cup before, and obviously, you know, the fact is Rodriguez, he did okay at Real Madrid, but he certainly wasn't, he didn't live up to the fee that, that they paid for him. Um, and I think the point is, you get carried away with um, with World Cup performances, but at the end of the day, it's, you know, each team's played four games so far. The um, if, you, if you were to evaluate a player over the first four games of a, of a football league season, you'd go, that is way too small a sample um, to, to evaluate them. And then even more so, if you look at the average quality of teams at the World Cup, uh, I can actually just get it up here. I think it's, according to our models, the average quality of team is kind of like a bottom half Premier League quality team. Um, so it's 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 a good standard, but it's not an exceptional standard. So, you know, when you've got a range of teams that some of whom are, you know, like Qatar are, are pretty much kind of League One quality. Um, a lot of them are, are, are championship or, or 
bottom end of the Premier League quality. You know, it's not it's not a great basis by which to evaluate players. Um, that said, obviously Bellingham has, has played very well in, in a very good team. Uh, our model currently values him at, at seventy five million pounds, which is, I think, maybe even a conservative price for for him, um, given you know the, the hype that's around him. And there is a bit of a premium, you know, if he's going to an English club, there is a premium for English clubs um, buying English talent just because you know it's it's better to have eight in your squad. Um, and Bellingham would obviously be one of those eight. So, yeah, it's um, it'll be an interesting time. So I think he's only got a, a couple of years left on on his deal as well. So we'll have to see where where he ends up if if this summer ahead is the one that that he moves. I think that's the other point, isn't it? Really, where you've got um, obviously um, it's fascinating on how much extra players can potentially transfer for with World Cup goals or playing well and and doing well, etc. But again, I know we in prep for, for when we were discussing before this chat, one of the things we were discussing was, you know, as you briefly touched on there, um, at what point do clubs have to make rational decisions on um, outgoing transfers, um, effectively when those players hit, you know, two years left to go on their deals, because ultimately anything after two years and then you're down to 18 months uh, before the player can potentially leave on a free. And then you can obviously sign to a foreign team in the UK, for example, you know, um, six months uh, left of the deal, etc. You know, at what point does that um, rapid depreciation in transfer value occur? Is it almost at that two year level? That's what it almost feels like in a way. Or actually, does it come slightly before that point? Yeah, I mean, even at two years, you see, a, you know, a discount on um, prices compared to at three years. And, and obviously, when you get to one year or six months, it, it gets even less. Uh, I don't have the figures to hand, but we've we've modelled it and we account for it when we're pricing for players. So, yeah, two, two years is obviously like an important inflection point because if play, players tend to get you know, more likely to be sold in summer. So if you miss out the two years, then it becomes one year, which is obviously a, a really short period of time. And actually, Bellingham was sold with 11 months left on his contract um, for only 25 million euros and and you'd hope that Birmingham would have got some sell-on fees there but but they wouldn't have been in the best negotiating position with, with such a short period of time left albeit I think it's probably a bit easier um to hold out when, when you've got such a, a good young player um so yeah I, I I think um from Bellingham's perspective you're you know you're in absolutely no rush to to sign a deal um at this stage um what would be interesting in Dan actually from your perspective as I think of it is uh, do do players ever have, uh, would it be unusual to have any kind of World Cup clauses in a contract? So perhaps like a World Cup Golden Boots or um, World Cup Best Young Player or anything like that? Or, or was that too, you know, way too specific, you know, every four years and therefore it doesn't really come up in, in conversation? It's, it's actually usually more prevalent in um, the main boot deal, actually. Um, it, it can obviously be in the employment contract degree. But again, yeah, it's more likely that I see it one in the the boot deal where, you know, if a player has played a certain amount of minutes for their national team, his or her national team, and then wins golden boot or scores X amount of goals or plays in the games and then they the team wins, then there, there are those escalators. I've sometimes seen it also in transfer agreements, in truth, um, where you have specific player KPIs if they are met, which then leads to extra amounts that one sell, the, the buying club will then obviously pay the, the selling club, which might last a number of um, years and a number of, uh, of cycles. So it, it tends to be 
um, those types of performance KPIs don't tend to see too many of them in the uh, playing contract, but is more likely to be not necessarily huge, huge numbers, but still significant amounts in uh, brand usually um, on that on that boot deal side. That's what tends to tends to see my side. Yeah, and I imagine in the lead up to the tournament becomes more focused. So at the, at the moment, if you've got a young player, you might not be necessarily thinking about 2026, but as you get closer to that, then, then you might negotiate. And I presume a, a World Cup's got more value than, than a European Championships or, or a Copa America on, on those things. Yeah, exactly. It can certainly mean that. But remember as well, the other side of it is that those types of performance-related um, clauses are sometimes quite difficult to activate. Usually the brands will have something like, well, you've got to have played in 75% of those games or 75% of the minutes. You had to contribute in some way. So I'm positive there might have been instances over the years where, let's just say, a, a player actually won um, a Euros or a World Cup with the, with his or her um, squad, but might not have absolutely technically qualified for the bonus because they didn't play in all of the minutes or play in all of the games, but might have significantly contributed. And by the the lay of the, the the law in terms of what the clause said, they might not have been entitled to that bonus. But I guess people would feel pretty hard done by if um, they didn't get the bonus as a result. But that's obviously then the relationship that there would be between the the brand and the player to see whether they would um, come to some type of arrangement. Very interesting. Um, well, we can't can't leave without a prediction. Uh, so, who's your who's your final four? I'm going, I'm going Brazil, Holland, England, Portugal. Very good. Well, I'll, I'll go Brazil, uh, Argentina, England, and I'll throw Morocco in there. Why not? There we go. Well, if uh, there's another Panaka along that lines, um, that'll be uh, <laughs> quite extraordinary. But that's for maybe a discussion for another day. Very good. Cheers, Dan. Enjoy enjoy the quarterfinals. You too. Thanks, Bob. Bye. Thanks for listening. You can follow me on Twitter, TikTok and Instagram at Football Law. Read my blogs and listen to my previous podcasts via my website, danielg.com forward slash blogs. Please do subscribe to the Dundee Football Podcast. Like, share and tag me. If you like the content, if not my voice, you'll probably also like my book, Dundee, an insider's guide to football contracts multi-million pound transfers and Premier League big business. A bit of a mouthful. It's available to buy in hard copy, digitally and via Audible. All links are in the podcast show notes. Lastly, the podcast is powered by 13, which is a fashion brand I've started. All proceeds go towards cancer charity research and particularly the stellar work done by John Krell, who has helped my mum through some difficult times over the last few years. You can take a look at the merch and hopefully buy a t-shirt, hoodie, cap, or all three. Please do spread the word and go to 13shop.co.uk. That's 13shop.co.uk. Thanks for listening.